This is a Federal News Network podcast. Memory, that part of computers you never seem to have enough of, is a weak spot for cybersecurity. Attackers have exploited memory since just about forever. Now the National Security Agency has published fresh guidance to help both software developers and users avoid memory exploits. Joining the Federal Drive with the details, the Technical Director for NSA's Capabilities Directorate, Neil Ziering. So within a computer, while a piece of software, any application is running, it's constantly reading from memory and writing to memory. For software to operate correctly, it has to be reading and writing to the right parts of memory, and an attacker may try to influence a piece of software to write out of bounds, to scribble outside the proper part of the page. When that happens, you can have all sorts of bad effects, like the program crashing, or doing improper things, or even facilitating access by an attacker. I could see where a programmer could make a mistake in giving the instructions to a program for where to write memory. And if that happens, then, you know, things will stop or they'll crash or whatever. But how can an exploiter get in when a piece of software is just running using the memory? How can that be altered at that point? Great question. In a typical piece of software that we might be using today, written in a traditional language, there's no safeguards in how the programmer, or very few safeguards, on how the programmer can utilize memory. So the programmer might be expecting certain behavior in a communication channel or interaction with a user, and they write their software depending on those assumptions. If someone breaks those assumptions like an attacker, there's no guardrails. The program will then you know, write outside the bounds or uh, read memory improperly and have these bad effects. The report that we uh, published the other day really talks about using technologies particularly programming languages, that help impose those guardrails, that shift that mental burden off the programmer and onto the programming language to avoid those kinds of problems. In other words, you are putting a governor on the car so that someone can't drive too fast in the first place. That's not a bad analogy, but I wouldn't want to perpetuate the myth that using a memory-safe language gives your software poor performance. That hasn't been true for many years. These languages, these compilers, they're very performant, and they can write software just as fast as any traditional language. Plus, memory is so much more abundant nowadays. It's much less of a constraint on programmers than it used to be, correct? It is. What I've found, at least in my personal experience, is the availability of lots more memory on a typical computer these days actually um, lets programmers sort of write their software in a more loose way and maybe not even think about memory as much, which sometimes helps lead to these problems, which is kind of all the more reason to uh, shift that burden back to the language system itself to help out the programmer and take some of that burden off their shoulders. We're speaking with Neil Ziering. He's technical director of the Cybersecurity Directorate at the National Security Agency. What is the advantage to the hacker to someone that gets into a system of exploiting memory vulnerabilities? What can they get out of it? If a software exploiter, an attacker, knows of a a memory safety vulnerability in a program, such as a buffer overflow or a use after free vulnerability, those are just technical terms, they can do many things. They can cause the software to crash. They can cause the software to do something improper in terms of a... uh, you know, writing to the wrong part of the computer or revealing information that it's not supposed to, or even take over operation of that software 
and cause it to run code injected by the attacker. Memory safety vulnerabilities can be very powerful and uh, can enable all of these different attack modalities. Yeah, interesting. Here we are, 75 years since the advent of memory in one form or another. (laughs) Now we have terabytes on a couple of chips these days, and it still happens. Why is that, do you think? I guess I'm asking philosophically, but at this late date in computing, relatively, it's still an open wound there. It is, and and that's one of the reasons we we published the article and why other thought leaders across the community have been writing and blogging and speaking in this vein. We have these technologies. Memory-safe languages have existed for decades and have matured greatly, I'd say, in the last five to ten years to the point where there's a wide variety of them. You know, when I was going to school decades ago, I learned languages like C, that did not provide those guardrails. All of that mental burden of keeping my program memory safe was on me as the coder. With newer languages, such as Go and Rust, and uh, you know Java's been around for a long time, C Sharp, Python, and others, you have the advantage that you can just write your code, write into your memory, and if you do something wrong, the compiler's going to catch you, the runtime system is going to help you, You know, I had a personal experience when I was learning Rust a few years back, and uh, at first I was frustrated learning a new language that it put all these rules on my behavior that I wasn't used to. But then when I finally got my program to compile, it just worked. I mean, all that burden that the compiler had taken off of me resulted in a better piece of software sooner in the development cycle than I was used to expecting. So that was a very positive impression I got of that particular memory-safe language. Now, a lot of agencies, I shouldn't say programmers, but a lot of people in agencies are turning to so-called low-code platforms where they attempt to draw the logic, if you will, of a system to modernize or create a new system. So low-code means the program that you're using, the platform, does the coding and not the user doing the coding. So there's a low amount of coding. Do we know if the output of these low-code platforms are memory-safe? That's a great question, and and I'm familiar with a few of those platforms. I'm not really a deep expert in that area. The ones that I am familiar with do exactly that, right? You you sketch out the logic that you want your software to perform, and then it generates code in one of these memory-safe languages or for a runtime system that is written in one of these memory-safe languages. So you get those benefits, at least in the systems I'm familiar with, when you use a low-code, no-code kind of platform. That would be something to ask your vendor then, by the way, the output of this is memory safe? Yeah, that's a great question to ask. And is there a little bit of historical irony here? Because in the very early languages, say Assembler, later on COBOL, Fortran, memory was such a precious commodity that that was half of what programmers worried about was sufficient memory to execute. And therefore, we didn't have these memory issues that came with the advent of C and cheap memory? Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. You know, when when I was learning to program as a college student, we were still somewhat in that era. And in my view, what happened was the fact that memory was scarce encouraged language designers to build in features where you could get cute with memory and use it in what today we would call improper ways you know, to try to eke out that last little bit of space in the limited memory you had. But what we found with modern language technologies is that you can have both. You can have 
memory safety and you can have efficient use of memory because our understanding of compiler technologies and optimization have all gotten better. So it's not a matter of giving up space efficiency or memory efficiency, which still matters for small systems, small embedded systems. Memory is still scarce. You can have your cake and eat it too here. You can have your guardrails. You can have those benefits of eliminating a bunch of these vulnerabilities and have efficiency too. And I guess before we let you go, you should give us the general summary once again of what the NSA advisory is telling people to do here. So we're really trying to encourage people to do is to leverage these memory-safe language platforms and runtimes as they move into new projects or as they add code to existing systems. Don't just go with the older non-memory-safe languages out of habit or out of inertia. Make the effort to go to these new technologies because they have real benefits, right? You can eliminate, depending on the type of system and the type of code, half, even over two-thirds of your potential vulnerabilities, and this is based on some studies done by Google and others, you can eliminate a large chunk of potential vulnerabilities just by shifting to these newer language technologies. And that's what we're trying to encourage folks to do. And that helps cybersecurity because now we're going to have software systems that have a smaller exploitable attack surface for malicious actors to go after. So as agencies modernize, and that means redoing legacy applications, it's probably worth taking the effort to re-render your logic with these new languages as a way to get better cybersecurity. Yes, exactly. Neil Ziering is Technical Director of the Capabilities Directorate at the National Security Agency, speaking there with Federal News Network's Tom Temin. We'll post this interview along with a link to the memory advisory at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I, um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in direct care, and and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know I'll take a look at it and see, see you know throw send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn 
uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused uh has a has a good story like it can just turn a day around for you and 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 you think of i i you know often when you'll walk away i'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out and come on you know like look at look at terrell like he 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 faces everything with optimism and 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 i've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the united states and globally you see people who have had everything stacked against them you know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. uh, We get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics. And, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but, but we're the lucky ones. Those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That, that, you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so, uh, joyful. And, and uh, I mean, we work hard and, you know, we, we're up against, you know, the things that nonprofits are up against and, you know, the, you know, the issues of the day. But, uh, man, you see it, it and, and, and the inclusion and the, at Special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yep. is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, it's not just school age. It's it's, uh, you know, we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks. 
that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.